Consuming Folly Part 2 In the opening instalment of this episode, we started to examine the interrelation between our twin roles as consumers and producers, as mediated by the price mechanism. We went on to discuss the relation between savers and entrepreneurs, in which we said that lay the true origins of the interest rate. Here we'll argue that any and all interference with these two go-betweens, prices and even more especially interest rates, can only lead to a host of malign consequences and will identify the usual perpetrators of such economic crimes. We ended last time by saying that even if some people were borrowing simply for consumptive ends and not in order to set up a, a means of funding capital formation, a subsistence fund, then yes, the world would be a poorer place, but there would not necessarily be any great cyclical upheaval because the two sides of the equation of today and tomorrow of savers and borrowers could still be in balance. We said there would be no dislocation of aims, no wholesale deception of the extent of available resources and no what we called incoherence in the plans being made by the various actors in society. That is, is the case if the interest rate is allowed to reflect spending and saving propensities in a natural manner. However, if we interfere with the clearing price of timeliness, the interest rate, through monetary manipulation, such that it diverges from that dictated by the balance of our innate proclivities, and worse, if we press our finger down so firmly on the scales that everyone, both entrepreneurs and exhausters alike, want to spend, and no one feels sufficiently incentivized to save, all of this self-governed compatibility becomes put in jeopardy. In this instance, those bringing consumption forward are like a group of particularly prodigal farmers given over to eating their seed corn. But worse is to come. The artificially capped or even lowered interest rate, which has tempted them into improvidence, will simultaneously spur producers to act on the fatal misapprehension that the current boom will endure, and that more fields should be cleared, tilled, sown and harvested as a result of the greater current consumption of grain. Thus. Deprived of clear interest rate signals about the building scarcity to which all this consumption, excess consumption is tending, producers will imagine instead that a great opportunity exists in borrowing cheaply to make additional agricultural machinery, to mine more potash and to construct more grain silos. But the looming dearth of seed to plant actually means that if anything there will be less, not more demand, for all such equipment and materials. To change the metaphor, the degraded information, the scrambled intertemporal settings as we say, take us to a stage analogous to that of a man who's been working for a long time to lay down a new clipper for his shipping line, but then finds that there's been a run on sailcloth caused by everyone using cheap money to treat themselves to a garden hammock in which to swing idly all day long. This prevents our shipbuilder from fully fitting out his vessel as cheaply as he'd planned and on the time schedule that he'd hoped to realise. But what's worse, when he finally does finish it, none of the idlers has any wherewithal to pay for a passage on the craft when his expensive new rigging is at last made complete and the ship glides down the slipway. With these two examples in mind, we can surely now see that the notion of bringing consumption forward 
is not much more than a fashionable modern euphemism for the traditional economic sin of consuming one's capital. Beyond even this, the overabundance of capital means, i.e. of apparently limitless cheap finance, as opposed to a genuine increase in capital per se, that is to say in saved and repurposed real resources, this will encourage not just established and heretofore profitable businesses to expand, as we've exemplified above, but it'll trigger a spree of highly speculative startups, projects as they used to contemptuously be called at the time of the great intertwined Mississippi and South Sea manias 300 years ago. Uh, episodes like the canal booms, the railway booms, the telecom boom, the dot-com bubble, you name it, the Grunderzeit. This is the sort of problem these things give rise to. Now there's nothing wrong with people trusting their own capital to even the most harebrained or long-odds ventures, or anything necessarily dishonest about those undertaking them. We might judge both of them to be foolish, but it's not for us to impose our scales of preferences on other people. And doubtless too, some of those long shots will come in and shower incredible riches on their backers, as well as by implication, material improvements on the rest of us, the customers whose appetite will underpin their success. What is a clear evil, however, is when interest rates are forced so low, and thus price and intertemporal signals are so swamped in static, that any chancer can have a crack at making it big, or at least of being able to sell it at a fancy price to some greater fool, before it all goes poof. In those circumstances, we can extend the parallel we used above about eating seed corn to say that this time it'll take place while the financial industry is busy shoveling money, the bulk had of course conjured up out of the ether, to any and every fast-talking gambler who wants a shot at farming exotic and nutritionally untried crops, using untested methods of agriculture on previous barren land and planting them out of season. If we do this, as arguably we currently are doing, is it any wonder if we will all end up tired, broke and hungry come harvest time? In the light of the foregoing, it shouldn't be too great a leap to see why we Austrians blame the very existence of the boom-bust cycle on our flawed financial institutions, and a fortiori on the commercial banking cartel's chief enabler, the central bank, for their role in suppressing the interest rate for creating the illusion that more capital exists than is really the case, and for fooling people into thinking they can both have their cake and eat it, by monetizing, i.e. by making instantly expendable, evidences of debt which would otherwise be there to show that the lender had suspended his ability to purchase until his debtor had discharged the obligation. It's also why you'll often hear us engage in what some dismiss as mere Old Testament moralising by saying that the more prolonged and pervasive the artificial boom to which such actions give rise, the more likely the severity of the ensuing bust. In reality, what we're suggesting is it'll take more time and effort to replace scarce capital the more it's been misallocated, or as we Austrians say, malinvested. And when we argue in addition that the more profuse and extensive the thicket of unfulfillable contracts and unrealised aspirations which we've caused to grow across our path, the greater difficulty in disentangling ourselves from those thorns and tendrils, we're not making normative judgments, we're making a coolly practical one. It should by now be apparent that a healthy, well-functioning version of that material, cooperative, multicellular organism which we refer to as the economy 
requires both a dense and a vibrant traffic of information, and also the operation of reliable and timely feedbacks in order to prevent the build-up of either wasteful excess or eminently avoidable scarcity. The nerve impulses and hormonal flows of our economic organism are generated by prices, the feedbacks by the incidence of profit and losses. In the latter case, profits signal the degree to which certain specific demands have not been fully sated, while the import of losses is that either the hunger itself has gone away, or else that the dish offered up has required far too much preparation and far too many ingredients, both of which inputs would have been more highly prized in following a different recipe if only the chef had been aware of that fact. Now the one thing this metaphor leaves out is that the economy is both an emergent and an evolving system. For rather than merely sticking with the self-regulating homeostatic nature of a single organism, what we have to consider here are the processes of change, adaptation, innovation and discovery, which are involved as a complex interplay unfolds between technical possibility, entrepreneurial alertness to opportunity, and the social and moral shifts in preferences which these must be harnessed to. In nature, life mutates to better fit the environment in which it finds itself, but also, in the course of its own operation, it moulds that same environment into one which gives rise to newer, often more advanced life forms. And as this unfolds over the eons, the environment tends to grow richer, more complex and more densely interconnected, at least to the point that some sudden external cataclysm intrudes to bring the whole temple tumbling down around it. The same is true of economic activity, if we leave it to itself to develop and to deliver a material progress which will be all the more rapid and assured if conditions are conducive to the flourishing and proliferation of that keystone species, the breed we call entrepreneurs. Now, Just as in nature, where no individual species, much less any single member of it, is guaranteed to thrive, so it is with professions, business ventures and product lines, entire industries even. Bear in mind, however, that such individual failures are not only frequent, but they're arguably inherent to the enrichment of the ecosystem, and that to try to prevent such failure is to stultify it, possibly even to poison it. Conversely, in the realm of economics, the parallels to the natural world's thankfully rare mass extinctions and genetic bottlenecks are entirely man-made, and so they occur much too frequently on that very account, given that human folly is much more constant than any highly episodic instance of planetary upheaval. In the economic world, it's not asteroid impacts, suddenly melting ice sheets or mass volcanic outgassing over which we have to fret, but rather it's legal inconstancy, political cupidity, central bank intrusiveness, which pose the truly existential and lamentably ever-present threats to human progress and entrepreneurial advance. Either way, it should be clear by now that it's not the consumer, seen as a member of some entirely distinct species who drives the economy, but rather that the linchpin of its development is that same person's success in performing his alter ego role, an overlapping and largely concurrent one, as a producer. Only if that execution is organised not to squander resources, only if he can profitably provide things which other producers in their turn will wish to consume, only if he can exchange the exercise of his skills and the employment of his capital for that of theirs, will he and they both have the keys to the well-stocked, diversely laden and hopefully ever more capacious larder 
to which they all desire jointly and severally to build and maintain. Such forms of organisation are in no way assisted by what Hayek called the bureaucrats and public intellectuals' fatal conceit, i.e. their presumption that they can not only better determine what should be done than can the voluntary localised interactions of the millions of their fellows over whom they would hold sway, but also that they have more than the most superficial knowledge of what can be done. To use another trenchant Hayekian phrase, this, what he termed their pretense of knowledge, is not just empty arrogance, but is actively pestilential. A well-ordered polity, therefore, is one which limits the reach of this nomenclatura and closely checks its scope for action. Remote party-machine politicians, supranational regulators and rule-givers, untrammeled technocratic titans like today's hubristic central bankers, these are all, in effect, the most voracious of consumers, and equally the producers of little to which value can be accurately ascribed, not to say much that is actively detrimental to the common wheel. Not only does this class of clerisy and its associated crowd of clients and contractors consume our goods and our capital, but it also consumes our liberties, and all this in quantities as hardly conceivable as they are often handily concealed. So pervasive is their influence, and so pernicious the effects of this influence in confusing all other actors and in degrading the signals which help coordinate their mutual dealings, that these are perhaps the only consumers who do drive the economy, but drive it, alas, not onward, but into the ground. So let's summarise our main conclusions. Consumption, personal, hedonic, exhaustive consumption, is an end, not a means. Production, both of what we consume ourselves and, much more typically, of what we exchange for the produce of others, precedes consumption both logically and sequentially. That precedence necessarily involves the passage of time, the bridging of which passage requires genuine capital, i.e. that fraction of our real resources which we have set aside from personal, hedonic, exhaustive consumption. If the widely dispersed, vertically integrated, finely subdivided, highly specialised acts of production, of whose discharge our wondrously successful and generally progressive economic machine consists, are to proceed with the least possible interruption, prices must be left free to reflect the relative strength of the myriad competing calls upon our finite resources, so that the scarcest of means are first put to the most insistent of ends. Combining these two concepts, the relationships between the prices of goods in being and goods in embryo, or even of goods in conception, must also reflect as accurately as possible what those in the system tell us they most want and when they want it, something they signal by voting their dollars and in turn by devoting their efforts to earning those dollars. Put another way, the relation between goods today and goods tomorrow should be such as to give a clear indication of the degree of patience people are willing to display in foregoing the exhaustive use of what they have now, so that this may contribute not to immediate satisfaction, but, as capital, to the fabrication and delivery of what will better satisfy them later. That relation, therefore, is intimately bound up with the rewards of temporary forbearance, what psychologists call delayed gratification, what we refer to as the price of timeliness. This is the true foundation of the interest rate. 
Even when the two act in near simultaneity, the coordination of productive possibilities with consumptive preferences is difficult enough to achieve even when not being too greatly confused by outside non-market interference. Profits show we have not yet fully matched the two. Losses that the effort to do so has been largely misplaced. On that account, it should not be hard to see that when such coordination must additionally take place over protracted intervals of time, it becomes even more challenging a task. And interference with the formation of the principal price involved, the rate of interest, is thus perhaps the most prolific source of endemic error, entrepreneurial misdirection and wholesale loss, i.e. of the entire wastefulness intrinsic to what we call the business cycle. Though mistakes are unavoidable, loss is ever present. A market free to generate its own signals and to develop its own feedbacks should not propagate these missteps at all widely, much less amplify them into something which threatens to disrupt the whole highly redundant and usually very robust network of interactions. It usually takes the special talents of the state and its associated banking apparatus to overcome such natural resilience and so lead us on to commercial disaster, to borrow a default and to business depression. Thus, to consume too little over any appreciable length of time is an almost unthinkable concept. To consume too much is an eternal temptation. To produce too little is to discover that too much of the needed capital has first been exhaustively consumed. To produce too much, strictly, too much of the wrong sorts of goods at the wrong place at the wrong time is direct evidence that the transmission of economic signals has been jammed by forces originating outside the market framework. Forces usually concerned not with liberating production but rather with exciting added exhaustive consumption in pursuit of the false prescriptions of mainstream economic doctrine. And therein, for us Austrians, lies the greatest and most persistent folly of them all. Thank you.